got a question for you, mate. Yeah. Who, yeah. who, who would you turn to if you needed an emergency dermatologist? Emergency dermatologist? Oh, I, I don't know. Don't worry. Don't worry. I've got it covered. I know exactly who you need. We need the at the topical vet on Instagram. His name's Dara O'Hanlon, and I've got him on the show. Brilliant. Let's get him on straight away. So t- tell me then, Dara. You say you went you went the uh, the pretty route to veterinary medicine. Mm, mm. So in Ireland, there's only one place you can study veterinary, and that's yep. University College Dublin. And mm-hmm. the, we go by a point system. So you you pick your six best subjects, and the maximum points you can get in each subject is a hundred. And so the maximum points that you can earn are six hundred points. And so for some of the higher subscribed courses. Um, you'll see that the points requirement goes up. So traditionally, veterinary is around 585 out of 600 or thereabouts. Recently, there's been additional requirements. Um, So you have to have some animal experience before applying and that kind of um, thing. But when I was doing my leaving certificate, which is your exit exam from secondary school, Mm -hmm. I didn't get as many points as I needed to get into veterinary. It was number one on my list, but I just didn't get enough points. So I, I love languages. I went ahead and I did an arts degree um, or humanities. So I did German and Italian, loved it, spent a beautiful Erasmus year in Munich. And then I was in um, final year of arts and I was getting ready for my final exams in German and Italian. And my dad came to me and he was like, Harry, you see this um, UCD now, they have graduate entry veterinary medicine. It used to be the case that you could only get in as a graduate if you'd done a science-based degree. But they had just changed it so you could have any degree. And so while I was preparing for my finals in the arts degree, I started doing the kind of the graduate admissions test for uh, medicines courses. Um, that was vicious, absolutely vicious. But luckily, I I remembered enough of things like chemistry and there was a language part of the exam. And in actual fact, my German helped me because without German, I'd be quite flowery in my language and, um, you know, go off in tangents. And anyway, I did well enough. Um, and then I went straight into uh, veterinary, uh, straight after arts. And it was a bit, of, it's like everything in life, there was a bit of a turning point. I remember I, I um, at the same time, around the same time as I was doing those preparatory exams to get into veterinary, I also got um, offered an interview to um, basically help to, there's a company called Board B, it's a semi-state body, and it's supposed to promote Irish food abroad outside of Ireland. Uh-huh. And um, anyway, this is how farcical this is. So I would have been like probably what, 21, 22. So an adult, let's be honest. And my mum drove me to this interview. I was wearing my dad's suit and I was like a child. I was like, I don't want to do it, mom. Like, I'm not doing this interview. And I went in <laughs> and we did in a strop, an absolute strop. And um, I just, I, I had I'd done a little bit of prep, but not much. And um, anyway, I got a call on my way home. Um, my mum didn't collect me she was a bit annoyed so I had to get the tram home but I got a call on the way home saying I got the job and I just had a sinking feeling I the, the the chance of stepping further away from veterinary just didn't sit well with me and that was it then straight into veterinary and I was one of five graduates so there, I, I did an arts degree there was a veterinary nurse um, there was an engineer a, a PhD student who had done cancer research and a physiotherapist we were the five graduates in my year yeah Cool. Wow. So why 
why a vet in the first place? What made you in? Yeah, excellent. I think would be a vet. Excellent question. So my granny uh, was a vet and so she would have been one of the first female vets in Ireland. She wasn't the first, but she wouldn't be one of the first. And she practiced in an area of Ireland called Westmead, which is right bang smack in the middle of Ireland. It's known as the Lake County, tons of lakes. Um, and I, I, I mean, as long as I can remember, I would have gone down with her. She would have doing a lot of TB testing um, and I would have helped her. Mm-hmm. And even like later in her years, um, she like she just was a phenomenal vet, a phenomenal woman. But I remember one time I would have been maybe 16, 17 with her and I was helping with the reading or sorry, the recording of the results. I didn't realize that this kind of bullock had gotten loose and it came towards me. A gate was open and I, I just froze. I didn't really know what to do. Um, I spent my summers um, in Westmead, which is a rural area of, of Ireland, but I'm from Dublin, kind of, you know, an urban area. And mm-hmm. um I just froze. The next thing she strode in front of me, closed the gate and pulled the latch across. And just as she pulled the latch, the bullock hit the gate and you hear this clanging. Now, there was a second in it. Um, so she definitely saved myself. But you, we were both seconds from getting skittered, you know. So um, so I have a lot to thank her for, for sure. And I would have had a big interest in animals anyway. I think like both the Irish and um, the British, like we did. I think we are both nations of animal lovers. I think that's fair to say. Yes, we are a nation of animal lovers, and uh, consequently, competition for vet schools is is very intense, isn't it? Hence, your circuitous route. Uh, but, but, Darren, I, I'm going to just flip back a couple of questions because at this stage, we we, we tend to to go in uh, for the sort of nitty gritty questions that, that you might not always consider. Can I come do that, Mike? Or are you gonna? Are you gonna ask? The I, I, I will. I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it. And, and you, look, please, you know, if I may, I may be hitting the topic a bit hard. But what, what's your favourite bread? Bread. Yeah. Bread. Bread. Yeah. Oh well, Brennan's here. It's like a white white pan. Can't you know? Can't go wrong. Okay. Uh, if yeah, other than good. that, other than that, it would be brown soda bread. Be a very firm second. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a staple. It's a staple diet. People were kicking off here a few weeks ago because um, the price of pints are going up, and um, uh, any <laughs> price of pints are going up. It's made the news, and uh, the publicans are trying to say, "Well, if you're so, you know, it's." I guess really what I'm saying is, it's remarkable how many people know about know how much the price of a pint is, but maybe not how much a loaf of bread is. I mean, a sliced pan, you really can't go wrong. Now, I'm a big fan of Brennan's. It's just one of those things. It's like tea bags, you know. You just you stick with what you know. You don't diverge. Brennan's yeah, white yeah. bread. Yeah. We don't well, get that. Well, I, I make my own white bread. So it's it's Hodes white bread at home. Nice. Um, and would you branch out from that? I mean, like, is this something that you've always done? Is this uh, something that's handed down from your mother or father to you? Or did you take this up in COVID like everyone else who did baking? I, I took it up in COVID uh, precisely because I couldn't get any flour. I realised I'd never wanted to bake more than I did at that time. And how is this business venture going? I mean, is the exporting going well? Can can I buy it here? Uh, no, you I can't mean, buy it there because because we've got Brexit. Perhaps we should explain for our American listeners that uh, that Dara is in Southern Ireland. Um, which is now part of Europe, 
And uh, we, of course, are in England, which is, of course, now supposedly the greatest island ever in the world or the history of greatest little islands. Now, you, you can still walk, I think, from southern to northern Ireland. So the, the physical part of Brexit hasn't occurred yet, has it? But I think we're getting 60,000 tugs to, to, to pull the whole of the United Kingdom uh, about 120 miles in a northerly direction oh, right, away from okay. Europe. Mm. It, yeah, oh, it, it, it is. Um, it was a big, it made big news over here the whole time because mm. um, I think it's fair to say Ireland's are, Ireland has benefited from the EU. That's for sure. We definitely have. Um, and then there, in terms of like sticking with just the veterinary for, for a moment, even if you look at things like the pet passport scheme, like a very popular and simple way to ensure that animals can freely move with their owners throughout the European Union and whoever else signed up to it. I think that's one of the the big maybe um, victims here because I've had I've had clients who would go between um, the island of Britain and the island of Ireland and they are if they're if they're exiting the island of Britain to come to the island of Ireland they need an animal health cert whereas if they get issued with a European issued pet passport which we can issue then it you know that's recognized by the island of Britain and there's free travel there's not as many issues but at the height of things when there was still a lot of negotiations and we didn't know which way things were exactly going to go there was a lot of fear and one of the worst things that I saw um, was a client whose daughter was based in Belfast which is in Northern Ireland and um, she was terrified and even though there's no requirement for animals to have a pet passport traveling within the island of Ireland um, she felt so fearful that she got a pet passport just for the purpose of getting on the train and going up to the next city which is Belfast which is a bit tragic and a bit sad um, and you know the crazy thing is like and I say it to clients as well you know everyone here anyway gets a bit fed up with Brexit and the crazy thing is from a science point of view like the island of Ireland hasn't had rabies since 1921 1922 I'm not sure about the island of Britain but it's pretty much the same N neither of us have yeah. Echinococcus multiocularis um, you know in terms of vector-borne disease we're more or less the same as well so our disease status is more or less identical. Um, so from a scientific point of view, it makes no sense. And it's just one of those sad things that's yeah, fallen yeah. foul of politics. I, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Appalling state of affairs. I'm just uh, sick of Brexit, period. You'll be yes. glad to hear as well, just going back to your point, Julian, about um, potentially, you know, sawing off parts of the world and floating them up. Um, there was, in the 90s here in Ireland, there was the monster raving loony party or something like that and genuinely one man party but their their theory was saw off the island of Ireland floated down to near the Canaries just you know for better weather so it's not a bad yeah. idea that, that, <laughs> I was, find... that was screaming lord screaming lord such yeah wasn't it I think I think screaming yeah lord. I don't think this is a one man party Dara I think this is a this is this was a British institution was the uh, raving it, monster it loony was. party it oh was. really no. yeah <laughs> yeah Someone in his party, someone in the Monster Raving Loony Party, was against the the idea purely because the weather wasn't conducive near the Canary Isles to grow potatoes. So they said it Valid would destroy point. the potato harvest. Valid yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. It's, sorry, am I still glitching terribly? All over the place. I, I just, I, the reason I'm glitching, no one from, from Open Reach can actually communicate 
And that's the one thing that a communications company sh should do. Two questions. One, do Sweet. they know yeah. that you, you run a very successful podcast and that hang that over them as a threat? And number two, have you taken the ultimate step of a registered letter slash letter to the Sunday Times? Yes, I've done both of those. Wow. Wow. One thing, you've omitted to say that you forgot to pay your phone bill. And two, <laughs> the 101 emails that you think you've sent because your internet's so crap didn't go. They're all in your outbox. <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, 100 megabytes worth. Not, not, 100, not 100 emails, 100 megabytes of email data. Because you live in West Sussex and there were, there were European grants brought in to bring electricity and water to your area as part of the European uplift scheme. Yeah, where they build roads and infrastructure and that sort of stuff. Um, but it hasn't reached your part of West Sussex yet. And now we're in Brexit, so that's it. So it never will. It never, no. We had to fund this ourselves. And those, those thieving, incompetent bastards at Openreach have done nothing. You do raise an interesting point. You do raise an interesting point about communication in general, though. And I think this is this is something that I'm I'm keen to chat about. Cool. Um consulting styles now i've seen probably two main consulting styles there is a third one that i'm aware of which i've never seen i think this is a unicorn i don't think it exists but it is something that that i'm i always say it's like whenever we have students who see practice with us i'll mention it um because i think the communication skills they've been identified as a weakness for recent grads and it's something that i'm like i'll you'll always 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 continue to get better and better and figure out like what's what what hits with some owners what hits with others and how to quickly realize if you're losing your grasp on the on the the pull of the conversation but i suppose the historical role of the vet was that of a guardian and this is where basically the vet presents all of the information but they'll only really present their preferred option to the client and this may be something that i suppose I think that that older vets is something that they would that's how they would have been trained to consult. And as well as that, it's it's probably relevant or it's probably the proper and right thing to do in a, in an emergent type patient or in that kind of situation where you don't really have time. The, the second one, and this is what I think I am slipping into, which is good and bad, but this is a kind of collaborator type role. And this is where you try and provide all the information. You try and educate the client. You tell them all the different options, or maybe you try and mm -hmm. there might be five options, but you narrow it down to maybe three. So a kind of modified type approach. And it's a shared decision-making between the vet and the client. Yes, no, um, known as a client concordance, isn't it? It's a concordance style of uh, of consulting where, where a, a, a mutually advantageous contract is, is, is sought. This is exactly it. And I think that in human healthcare, they realize that this this results in kind of better health and patient outcomes. So like the the, the feeling from the patient is is better or the um so I'm assuming that it's the same in veterinary as well. Um and also it kind of helps you when you're you're going through that shared decision making, if there are any potential obstacles like financial barriers, you can potentially overcome those, or it could be it might become very clear that option three is just off the table for now. The unicorn option I've never seen, and I'd love if you guys have seen. Mm. And this is a teacher role where you pool the information from different sources, the veterinarian, the client, elsewhere. You present all the options to the client with no weight given to your preference as the vet. 
And then that means that the client is the primary decision maker. Now, I have never seen that myself. I don't know if you guys have seen that. No, again, I've heard of it, but I, I don't see how, I don't see how it would work. Mm. I th- I think uh, if, I was, if I was a client in that position, I think I'd be saying, okay, right, I've got the information. So how much are you going to pay me for the decision? <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, a lot of clients still come along and don't really want to have options. They want to be told. Um, and you, you have to say to them, no, no, I, I must point out the other option. I must point out that, that there are other options. No, I, I, I don't want that. I, I, I trust you. I trust you. Well, if, you may trust me, but what if it goes wrong? What if you trust me, but actually you can't afford the option that I'm going to recommend? Yeah, well, it's difficult. It is a balancing act, and, and uh, I quite enjoy it. I, I do enjoy the the, the finesse of, of, of trying to, to, to work out, not, not, what, not to work out what the client wants, but to work out what style the client wants to be told mm. in. That's quite nice, isn't it? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, they are coming to you as a professional, for mm. your professional opinion, and they are paying you for that. And beholden within that is the responsibility, yes, to, to educate them and give them options, but is the responsibility to guide them as a professional in the most appropriate mean way forwards. It's... Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, do you go through a lot of that, Dara? Because you know, let's let's go back onto your veterinary career if we can. You're an emergency dermatologist, I understand. <laughs> well, there is thankfully there is no such thing as an emergency dermatologist. That's oh, the great so thing. You're not one then. What? Oh, you're not one. <laughs> no, no, sorry, I am a dermatologist. Yes. Oh, I thought you were an emergency dermatologist. No, no, but I'm laughing because that that is a beautiful thing about dermatology. Very rarely. Mm. Will you find uh, an, uh, an emergency? And, you know, you, thankfully, that is very, very rare. Um, there's that. I don't know if you guys watch Scrubs, but constantly. Um, yes. Yeah. Who's who's uh, Dr. Cox? Constantly Dr. Cox is yep. is ribbing the dermatologist because he'll call him in saying, oh, come here. And the dermatologist finally is like, oh, I've got something to do. And he's like, yeah, no, I just wanted to see. This is what real doctors do. You can go now. I have no need for you. <laughs> so... <laughs> But um, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. So I am. I when I came back to Ireland, I'm skipping a little bit, but but we can go back because I I I suppose I'm I was keen to chat about my time in UK, uh, in in England is where where I practiced briefly. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I think there's some subtle differences between yes. practice in in say Britain and Ireland. The fl- the floor is yours, Dara. Go for it. If you want to go back and then come on to that, yeah. do it. Well, it just so it's ramblings after all. It's not veterinary in a straight line. It's veterinary ramblings, so it's fine. So basically, veterinary degree loved it. I'm sure you guys did as well. It, it arguably the best five years of my life. I absolutely loved it. Uh, thankfully, we had a really tight year. Um, still in contact with Lowe's, and we had a wedding only a few weeks ago, and it was like a massive reunion. Absolutely brilliant. A great degree. Um, fantastic to see what you can do with it. I went straight into an internship. Um, a small animal medicine internship. Um, it was good. It was very rewarding. It was crazy hours. It was kind of 95, 95 hour weeks. <clears throat> but it was good in terms of becoming more equipped to deal with the more complicated medical cases. There was a reasonable amount of um, first opinion work. There also was a, 
a heavy workload in terms of, say, um, chemotherapy. They didn't have a chemotherapy unit at the time. So it actually fell to the intern to do an awful lot of it or to at least manage it. And at the end of it, I ran nine months into that 12-month internship. I kind of ran out of steam. All of the interns did. We were really lucky. All the interns were fantastic. Um, but we all kind of ran out of steam at the end. And I said, you know what? I need something where I'm more hands-on. Um, instead of this kind of hierarchy in a tertiary hospital type environment, I need something more hands-on. So I went across to the UK. And the reason why is that I wanted a place that had good men mentorship, at a reasonable number of, say, cert holders in different disciplines so that I um, I wanted to try and take on as much as I could, but I also wanted the option to seek the advice and experience of more of more trained, more equipped, more experienced colleagues. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the things like if there, is, if there are kind of people thinking about what to do after college, um, some of the, my, my shortlist were that it needed to be near a major airport so that if I needed to get home, that I would only be, say, within an hour of an airport that had regular flights mm -hmm. back to Dublin. It needed to um, be relatively close to like a major urban centre so that, you know, you weren't going to be off in the middle of nowhere. I wanted it to be a single site practice. I didn't want to work in a multi practice, like in many branches, because I, I myself personally, I know that I can be a bit um, withdrawn for the first month, say, before I get to know someone and then I'll open up a bit more and I was conscious I'd have more chance of getting to know the team if I stuck in one site and then the last thing was um, I needed a rugby club nearby because I knew that I need something outside of simply work um, <laughs> so I landed on a beautiful place called Harlow in Essex which is just on the border you're both <laughs> laughing I'm glad you're laughing yeah, yeah. I'm glad you're laughing because I, I said to my family, brilliant, I've sorted it. I've chosen where I'm going to work in my first first opinion job. And within half an hour, my brother emailed me, top 10 Chav Towns UK, Harlow. <laughs> and I, I I didn't know what that meant. I had no idea what, I'm, we don't have that word here in Ireland. I started I to Google it, like um, Urban Dictionary, what Chav meant. And um, yeah, there were aspects of The only of way is Essex, mate. The only way uh, is Essex, mate. Yeah. For, for our listeners... Um, and uh, hope, hopefully many of them are in Essex, which I have to say is is a, a lovely <laughs> part of, of England. Uh, it, it's got a reputation, and even the Essex uh, uh, national, <laughs> nationals would, would, would agree. It has a reputation for a certain, um, a certain type of individual, a wrong reputation, What's the urban definition um, of chav? So chav, a chav is, what is a chav? What is uh, a chav? It's probably, probably not very nice, is it? No, it's not very nice. I think it definitely has a derogatory <laughs> sense like to it. It is derogatory, certainly. A, 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 an Essex girl would be one who, who tends to wear as much makeup as she can down a disco and dance around a handbag. Um purely from, from reputation I've, I've never seen them do this right i've i've got the dictionary definition of a chav so for our american listeners <laughs> chav is a young person of a type characterized by brash and loutish behavior usually with connotations of low social status because of course the uk 
is a is the paradigm of perfect social strata and social status, whether you're upper class, middle class, or lower class. We've even got lower middle class and upper middle class and lower upper class. Uh, upper, upper lower middle class. That's that's where I am. I think yeah. Upper lower yeah. middle class. Yeah. So there we go. <laughs> the bourgeoisie is <laughs> <laughs> the bourgeoisie. You were telling us, Sarah, about uh, your 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 first job. So Essex, Harlow, Chavsville. I was a bit uh, so <laughs> I, because I had to Google and Wikipedia what Chav actually meant. I was I, with trepidation. I set on board my Ryanair flight across to Stansted Airport. Um, the beauty of Harlow for me was that I got a train south into Liverpool Street where I could meet my brother, other people who are working in London, or I could get the train north to Stansted, which is only something like 20 minutes away, and I could fly home. Um, and ha- Harlow was an unusual, it probably still is a slightly unusual place in that it had very three, dis- three distinct um, inhabitants. So you had people who were working in London and commuting from Harlow to London. You'd you mm-hmm. temporary workers in the airport who again were commuting north. And then you had kind of true Harlow people, people who lived there. To be fair, um, in Harlow, I've nothing but nice things to say. They're all very, very nice people, salt of the earth. And also I was very lucky in that everyone in that small clinic was really, really nice to work with. And unusually, and I haven't come across this since, it probably was the only practice, it, sorry, it is the only practice today for me where you had veterinary nurses who were slightly more experienced in their career, um, which I I actually don't see that here in Ireland. So I'm not going to put an age on these people, but they, it's clear that they're in family life. It's clear that they've got many years of experience behind them. And I actually, it was perfect for me at the time because they were almost like maternal type figures. Um, they did a lot that at the time I didn't even realize, but with the benefit of hindsight, you realize, Janie Mack, they definitely fielded a lot of stuff that would have crossed my desk otherwise. Like, you know, the mm-hmm. awkward client or phone calls that, you know, it, the easier thing would have been like, oh, I'll just get the vet to ring you back. Mm-hmm. They'd turn it into a consult or they'd be able to explain what the medication was for. It sounds so simple, but that's the value of experience. I remember one weekend working with them and um, one of the nurses played a blinder. And um, we had, I think, like a stitch up and a spay to do or something crazy and concerts were going on and she was able to kind of get going with the suturing. Um, mm. Just a really high level of veterinary nursing. And also, I think that, I mean, could you make an argument that maybe the career of a vet nurse is slightly longer in the UK than, say, it is here in Ireland? I'm not sure. I tried to look at, the, I tried looking at the stats for that and it's unclear to me from the stats. Yeah, where yeah. Do, do you know, I, I've tried looking up the stats as well. Um mm. I, I, I do a lot of, of, of work with the BVNA uh, and, and, and the BSAVA. Um, it's it's difficult finding those stats, but it, it would appear that, that, unfortunately, the career of a nurse is is decreasing in length uh, over the years. Um, as, as wages are salary... Uh, uh, rates and, and bands become more disparate now the the in fairness a lot of the corporates are trying to address that and, and give the veterinary nurses uh, a, a fairer more appropriate salary um, years uh, of, of poor pay have turned a lot of nurses away years of poor pay have unfortunately brought about the reality that, that nurses can't get mortgages on the salaries they're on they can't uh, see them as as lifetime careers in, in in every case it's getting better getting mm. better but uh 
I think those ones that you saw in Essex probably represent the fact that, that as a, an area of the country, they probably have a slightly uh, lower uh, costs uh, in that area. I think it's probably a slightly cheaper area to live in. The salaries are broadly equivalent to the rest of the country, and therefore they, they probably can afford to stay vet nurses for longer. Uh, I, I'm going off the off the hip there. Might yeah, be true. I think, Might, I think yeah. you're both missing the fact that you can only wet nurse so many junior vets in your lifetime. You think it's a burnout thing? Because you. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing. The other thing I have to say, and I'll have to hold my hands up on this and say that um, I do think that at least in Harlow, I think the client, the type of client that we had was a lot different than any that I've seen in Ireland. And I think part of it might be due to the NHS. Um, mm-hmm. I have, I remember two distinct examples. One was that we did a parva test on a young dog with diarrhea. And because the test was negative, the owner said, well, if it's if it's negative, then I shouldn't have to pay for it. And um, I'm sure you both of you come across stuff like that. But I I remember just being totally bamboozled. I just couldn't wrap my head around that that would have been an option. And the second one, which kind of more so drives this point home, is that I had a client and um, their cat had asthma. And so I was demonstrating the inhalant um, steroid inhaler. Mm -hmm. And he was having a right pop at me about the cost. I said, well, that's just it. Like, you know, the inhalers, like they cost money. You know, this to me is like the most cost effective way to manage this condition. And he said, well, no, it doesn't cost money. I was like, well, it does. Like we've had to buy it in. And, you know, this this is how much it costs. <laughs> and he whipped out a receipt and he said, no, look, here's my inhaler. It cost me nothing. And um, he had gotten, <laughs> yeah, basically. So he'd gotten the inhaler on the NHS yeah. or on the prescription. And I must say, I think it does skew probably the value of the excellent professional service that veterinary professionals provide mm. over there. Uh, we don't have that here to that same degree. Sorry, we just don't have that here. I've, I've never come across that ever. And, and you don't get free treatment and point of care, do you, in Southern Ireland? Well, it's sorry, you free we all know that the taxpayer pays for it so this this was this is how naive i was at that point i said to him i was like no no but it, it's not free i was like someone's paid for it like that you know i've paid for it in the taxes i pay as i'm working here in england and he was like no 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 i i did not pay for this i was like no i i realized that you did not hand over money for this i was like but someone has paid for it 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 costs something there is an intrinsic value to this and yeah. it was that concept was just lost completely. And then I re- and very quickly, not quick enough, I realized that this was a, what's it called? A Sisyphean task, pushing water up a hill. I just. Absolutely. But you're pushing, you're pushing a rock up. That's always going to come mm. back down again. Mm. Yeah. So I don't envy you. I'm not sure that's across uh, the spectrum. Sisyphus was, of course, the, uh, uh, the, the mortal condemned by the gods. Uh, was it? I seem to remember it was for helping Prometheus steal fire, wasn't it? But in any case, he was condemned forever to uh, to push a rock up a hill, yeah. and every night when he fell asleep, it rolled back down again. Mm. Yeah. Yes, it is a bit like that, isn't it? I, um, I think I think you're right. I mean, <laughs> we're seeing a lot of um, there's a lot of backlash right now as we're recording. The, the, the some of the national daily papers are picking up on. Uh, on the, the the vet charges and it's rip off Britain and it's rip off vets and mm-hmm. they make too many mm-hmm. charges and I think I, I think you've got a good argument there that the 
we are spoilt in that all of our NHS healthcare is perceived to be at zero cost. And I, re- I remember having similar discussion yeah. with my mother many, many years ago who um, who had an emergency MRI. And she went, oh, isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? I said, yeah. Now, do you know how much that cost? And she went, well, it didn't cost anything. Exactly as you were saying there, Dara, because she didn't perceive yeah. that each ambulance journey costs nearly £600. <laughs> yeah. And then you've got... An anaesthetist, you've got two nurses, you've got a radiographer, you've got your intake surgeon, your your intake doctor, etc. in this magnificent great infrastructure that has cost you, millions. You, you've course, got the people who clean the uh, the theatre and the MRI suite before and after as well. Absolutely, whole, but there's there's no perception thing. of cost. And of course, Every step costs money. Mm. Yeah, and in veterinary medicine, of course, that is all fronted by the small business that is providing those services. And uh, because there's arguments for NHS for pets, isn't there? Yeah, there was there was proposals here that you would make, um, like any any public money, oh, what's the best way to, to describe this? So there's only two ways that the that you pay into a, a public coffer in terms of owning a dog, for example. You, you pay a fee with the local authority in terms of your dog license, and then... Mm-hmm. What's the other one? Can't even remember what the other one is, but there's definitely two. Well, anyway, they were going to make it simpler and they were actually going to take, put a small percentage on any dog food that was being sold and then put that into, say, a, a central pot. Um, but they abandoned that anyway. But I think it, as well as that, um, the UK is a very, very good example where you've got excellent stratification of your veterinary professionals and even the, the registered veterinary nurses and the different qualifications that they can obtain and there's more and more kind of strata of qualification that we don't quite have here yet um so for instance i'm only one of four um dermatologists here in ireland uh, so there's not many of us and similarly we don't have any board certified dentists here in ireland as an example and i think that maybe in britain perhaps uh there's both i i guess i have to be careful how i phrase this I'm I'm wondering, is veterinary getting to the point where you've got so many different levels of care? So, you know, you've got, say, general practice, then you've got your certificate holders, you've got your emergency critical care or 24-hour care or overnight care, then you've got your, your uh, board of uh, specialists. It's getting to the point where almost like human medicine, you have um, then further specialization, you know, like um, radiation oncologists and things like that. And also then on the other side of the equation, you've got perhaps um, a kind of a perception that is veterinary becoming more litigious. And is there, is, is there this worry from, say, a vet in particular, maybe a recent or a new grad, that what am I going to miss? And maybe there's then that that uh, feeling that you must run many tests all at once in order to make sure that you don't miss anything. And I think that maybe is part, part of where, say, big costs can come from if you're trying to be very, very complete and um, best practice in a workup whereas I think maybe the golden age of veterinary when you would just be like try this and come back to me in two weeks if it doesn't work that is is that on the way out or is that I'm not sure or is is it just that fear of perhaps uh, lit- litigation or even the or CVS um, complaint but but a lot of the a lot of the newish grads um, you know for five years or or, uh, or less qualified will not 
particularly seniorly experienced vets at their practice because, uh, like like me, they've sold up and uh, uh, some of them may not want to to work anymore. And so they're in practices kind of alone. But there are groups of people who are relatively inexperienced together, and they all agree that the way to get the information for a case is to run tests. And they haven't developed that pragmatic shortcut mm. that you have, you have to take sometimes, or you can take sometimes. But nor do they have the authority as as younger vets to convince owners that actually it's okay to just step back a little bit and take your time. So th there's those two sides, aren't there? That that they're becoming risk averse, and also they haven't got the experiential lead and mentoring perhaps that they used to. I think that's that's a brilliant point. And I, I know both of you are big fans of evidence-based medicine. I think that's where evidence-based mm. medicine can actually fill a nice gap. Because even though you might be junior in your career, or perhaps you're lucky and you might be one of these people who's naturally confident, I think no matter which end of that spectrum you're on, if you're able to say to the owner, okay, well, um, I don't know, uh, for example, kennel cough, you know, should we use a non-steroidal or a steroid? Well, we know from this field trial in, in the 70s that there's no clinical benefit of using steroids. So we're not going to use steroids or whatever it may be. Like, I think that sometimes you don't necessarily have to have that experience yourself, but you can just point out a valid statistic and it just completely backs it up. And then the client is probably going to go ahead with you more because like, Jenny Mac, this, this guy or girl knows her stuff. Hmm. Absolutely. It's no longer a case of saying, I'll give it this because it's always worked. But a case of, I'll give it this because actually it should work. Here's, here's the evidence to suggest yeah. that it should. Uh, so we, we are actually then talking as mentored people. We're mentored by by a wealth of evidence rather than by some old codger like me saying, I'll give it a shot at this because that's always worked. <laughs> steroids. He's got a skin problem, has it? Let's give it some steroids. There we go. I think, now, I think it was a famous your that lasts a long time. A famous <laughs> lecturer at the Royal Veterinary College that said, "Get it dead by the weekend, or don't let anything die without a shot of steroids." Yeah, we, old we've got a, yeah, pred or dead isn't that the phrase? <laughs> pred, pred <or> dead. <laughs> my my uh, my old boss used to have what he called was a Friday afternoon special. So anything that came in that looked like it might need a workup, he'd give them a shot of Clam and DQ, as he called it, Clamoxil, which was uh, you know, potentiated penicillin, and um, and dexamethasone or dexadresin. <laughs> Clam and DQ, I think, will give you all your pen. That'll see it through to Monday. We made it a workup then. And of course, you know, the steroids would have completely mucked up any bloods you'd take the following week. And a single shot of antibiotics, doing the worst thing you can for antibiotic stewardship but th there was there was a whole generation of vets largely i think by now retired who would have their their friday night special drawn up in syringes by the nurse for the number of clients they're going to see well oh, there is there is that famous uh kind of meme about uh, internal medicine is just how many tests you can run before you arrive at the decision give this patient steroids so, you know, there's that as well. But I suppose the other thing is that, you know, I suppose I look back to, you know, earlier in my career or certainly like some of the stuff that my granny would have done or some of the stories that um, some of the more experienced vets I've worked with, they would have talked about, you know, things that I will never probably do, like thyroidectomies. Like I've never done one. Um, 
I probably won't ever do one. I can't imagine. Maybe I will, but like, I, you know, it certainly hasn't come across my desk. And then you look, say, at the, maybe you're looking back through it, uh, through rose-tinted glasses because at the same time, you take something simple like arthritis, for, for example, there weren't that many treatments available. And then conversely, you look now at the vast multitude of treatments that are available for that very common condition. And it can be a bit of a minefield. There are mm. now tons of medicines, different classes, many different drugs within even one class. And, you know, I still will have to stop and do a good think before a patient in front of me and say, okay, well, you know, what is the best option here? Should I use something new like, you know, the monoclonal mm. antibodies like Labrella? Do I go old school and um, like Pentacin polysulfate, like Cartrophin, which I think is criminally underused. It actually is a good drug, just um, has fallen a bit by the wayside here anyway. You don't hear being used as much. And then some of the kind of the older drugs that have now worked their way back into contention, like paracetamol or ketamine. It is fascinating. Uh, it really is. It, it really is. And it means now that an orthopedic consult, an arthritis consult, uh, is, is an hour and a half. You know, you, you can't. And, and really, you should be doing it alongside of a nurse and, if you can, a physiotherapist. There's there's a thing, isn't there, in the medical profession that that uh, you know the exciting stuff is surgery and the boring stuff is dermatology, because all you ever give is steroids. But I know that's not true. So tell tell us tell us about steroids. Uh, sorry, tell us about dermatology. <laughs> no, I suppose my my interest in dermatology probably started over in um, the UK. So just I suppose even a simple thing like. Otitis externa. I got into a habit because what was what was generally done in that practice was that you would give Suralan at the first presentation. Now we were very good in terms of doing cytology, so uh, you know as long as it was cocci or malassezia, you would give Suralan, and then at the um, you didn't necessarily schedule in a recheck, but if the dog came back within an arbitrary amount of time, we'll say three months, and um, then generally you would use say a a, a more potent. Um, proprietary ear medication and oh, anyway I got offered I got, got the chance to go to CPD it was um by none other than Sue Patterson and she talked oh, for fantastic. oh it blew my mind I'm gonna be honest but absolutely blew my mind. so yeah. she honestly spent her in 90 minutes talking about ear cleaners and I was on the edge of my seat I I I I, I just couldn't believe it I was like how can there be so much knowledge about ear cleaners I was waiting and I, I Went up to her afterwards and I had to thank for it. I still, of all the CPD I've done, I still have saved that whole folder from that event. Absolutely phenomenal. And that kind of stimulated my interest. And then by the time I got back to Ireland, um, I was more interested in trying to be really exact. So if I saw such and such underneath the microscope, what was the best medicine to use? Um, and then after that, I once I, um, in the current practice I'm in, like it's, it's, um, it's just in, in one site. So I'm, I know the clients very, very well. I know the patients very, very well. And it got it like it really struck me that you'd start seeing the same pattern where like in the late spring, this dog would come back and it would be, you know, a month or so either side, but it'd come back again with a tight externa. And then from there, I just started to think more and more about the environmental allergens. Then my mind got blown when I realized about things like food allergies. And then I started to kind of go down that rabbit hole. 
And I just wanted to know more and more and more. And then I wanted not only to know what the triggers were, but then how could you potentially manage a patient so that even in the presence of triggers, could you stop them from flaring into a full-blown infection? Um, and then I started, I, 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 you have to be a little bit careful. Like sometimes owners don't necessarily have the same enthusiasm that you do. So sometimes I'll be on regular consults and there might be a new client who just happens to have booked in with me. And I deliberately don't tell them that I'm a dermatologist because I just want to keep it really simple at the start and see just how much interest there is. And if there is, then yes, brilliant. And what I do is I'll generally kind of send them an email with some information so that if it's too much that they have a chance to maybe digest over the weekend. And if there is an appetite, then go ahead. So I did my, um, I did my, uh, cert uh, with University of Liverpool and um, like all of the certs like that opportunity to delve into the evidence look to see you know you know what I suppose what works and what doesn't and um, that was fantastic and now at this point now I I do routinely like as long as I suppose this if you've got the right patient I'll do food trials and um, they're incredibly rewarding especially if you like one of the most successful ones was kind of an older dog around six, eight years of age who had chronic otitis his whole life. And um, it responded to the food trial. Now, it took a while to get to the owner there because he was still giving um, sausages. And I was like, I, I kept saying to him, I was like, no, no, anything, anything can trigger food allergies. You need, like, I want this to work. So please, like, just give me six weeks where you just don't feed anything other than this prescription diet. That's the only thing that should cross yeah. his dog's lips. That, that anyway, prescription and, diet and water, nothing else. What, not even the cup of tea and a biscuit in yeah. the morning? No, especially not the cup of tea and a biscuit. Well, yeah. we did we did the re-challenge with this dog and it turned out that, you know, within two weeks of being fed sausage, the ears flared up. So I actually didn't hear anything from that that man at all. And I wasn't sure because he, he the dog would come to you when it was in a full bone ear infection. It wouldn't just come if you, they were seeing a sensation of itch. <clears throat> and anyway, around Christmas time, one of my last consult booked in, uh, Dara, this owner wants to see you. And I was opened the door, said, come on in. Like, it, it's an ear infection, is it? Like, And he was like, nope, I just wanted to give you a Christmas present. Look at him. He's perfect. And I shook his hand, wow. shook down the ears. And I must say it was brilliant. Like to, to think that something's simple. And the greatest thing is like, there's no need really for me to get involved after that point. And I'm just delighted to think that this dog now has gone many, many years doing well. The other thing I do wow. then is specific to like, if it's not food allergies, then I'll do, um, I'm a big fan of intradermal testing. So mm. this took a while to like prepare, but basically like there's going to be regional differences. So for example, over there in Britain, from what I understand, things like the oak tree are quite prevalent in terms of it being an environmental allergen. Whereas mm -hmm. over here, we probably would have more birch trees, for example. Um, yeah. So basically what I would do is I'll, um, I'll do those uh, intradermal tests and then I'll formulate the allergen specific immunotherapy um, based on the results. And that also is really rewarding because you get a chance roughly every month to see how well the patient is doing and, mm -hmm you know, modify the plan. And then obviously there's more than just allergies, but that, to be honest, that is the most common hmm. condition that animals get. Referred to. And, and in your experience, are those immunomodulatory um, uh, desensitization protocols effective? They are. Yeah. So uh, the, I suppose stat wise, any of those treatments are around 75% effective and um, hmm. any of them. So whether or not you're talking about cyclosporin, oclactitinib, which is apoquel, Loki Vetmab, which is Cytopoint, or even prednisolone, although I think it is higher than 75, but the evidence suggests 75%. They're all around 75% effective. 
the benefit of the allergen-specific immunotherapy is that we know that, say, 80% of allergic patients will go on in life and become more allergic. So when I was in vet school, we were actually trained that, oh, no, well, dogs grow out of allergies. Now, unfortunately, that's not true. Um, and the, oh, sorry, I've lost my train of thought, but the, um, the allergen-specific immunotherapy, it's the only treatment as well that can change how the immune system works. Um, and also there's a very small chance that you can put an animal into remission. So we know that from human studies that if they, if they're desensitized long enough, that they can go into uh, remission. The same thing can happen in dogs, although it's remarkably rare. Um, Cyclosporin atopica is a beautiful drug as well. It also does uh, change the immune system and is remarkably good. But over here, at least it actually, it is remarkably expensive compared to other drugs. And for that reason, we find that most clients don't opt for it. I do recommend it, but it, it is of significant cost, unfortunately. Yeah, it is hugely expensive. Yeah. Hugely. I, I need um, to ask you, Dara. The owner came to you and said, wish you a Merry Christmas and shook your hand and gave you a bottle of whiskey or whatever it was. Did the dog thank you for not spoiling his sausage supper? <laughs> well, the- this is this is one of these cases. That dog was not my biggest fan. Like he he, you know, we, we think about so this is this is actually really interesting. So we think about pain and we think about acute pain and things like that. One of the aspects of pain that I often forget about is the anticipation of pain, that emotional aspect of pain. So this dog was so sore for so many years that anytime he saw a vet, he just went nuts. And in fairness to him, he did not react one iota when I passed the otoscope and had a look down. And he didn't like it. So in as much as a dog can say thank you, I think he was by not trying to bite me. I think he was trying to say thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you were just of very course. lucky. I'm sure that dog was thinking that's the bastard that sport my sausage supper. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah, I'll get you next time. I'll get you next time. Oh, so, Dara, you mentioned that Sue Patterson. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a great fan of Sue Patterson. Um, I, I used to work with her on. BSABA uh, council, but um, she she's a fantastic lecturer. Um, I don't know that she could have encapsulated that amazing talk on um, uh, on ear washes into into sixty seconds. Um, very few people can do a a good CPD session in sixty seconds. I, I wonder is that something you'd ever consider doing yourself? I can give it a good on the shot. Um... But we may have to put subtitles on it because with my <laughs> with my Irish accent and if I really ramp up the speed, I think I can get just about enough in. Might okay. be unintelligible. Oh, well, we have on the speed dirty tree in a turret, shall we? <laughs> Eddie, what are you going to do your 60-second CPD on? We're going to do our 60-second CPD on acrylic dermatitis. You would say that, wouldn't you? I would. How am I going to, how am I going to repeat that? Acrylic dermatitis. Eh? Just abbreviate it. Just ALD. Whatever. Whatever. So, so, Daryl O'Hanlon, 60 seconds. I'm just going to say dermatitis. Starting now. Acrylic dermatitis. The lesions are easy to diagnose visually with ulcerated lesions, usually on the lower limbs, especially the left craniocarpal region. There are predisposed breeds, Doberman, Great Dane, Lab, Irish Setter, Golden Retriever, Weimaraner, German Shepherd. There are primary factors and there are perpetuating factors. It's important to note with the primary factors that none of these are mutually exclusive. Some primary factors that are organic include allergic or hypersensitive disease, infectious disease, 
previous trauma or foreign bodies, so for example, surgical implants, orthopedic disease, such as arthritis, infiltrative disease, hormonal or endocrine disease, and neuropathies. Some psychogenic factors include obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety, boredom. So for example, we know that 70% of affected dogs aren't taken for walks, attention-seeking disorders, and stress. So it's important to identify as many of these primary factors as possible in order to adequately manage these patients. There you go. Fantastic. Sue Patterson, if you're listening, you, you've, you've got a rival here. Yeah. I think Dara can, Dara can deliver. I cold called. Six, 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 I, no joke to you. I cold called Sue Patterson in uh, one you? of the. Yeah, I did. So I was doing an ear flush and it was one of the nurse's dogs. And obviously, you know, by the way, the fact that I've mentioned another nurse's patient or another nurse's dog that this story does not go well. So there was this impaction of wax adjacent to the eardrum and I was gently flushing it, gently flushing it. Uh, so it was kind of it concreted into a, a stony type structure, a ceruminolith, to give it its proper term. And unfortunately, as I was trying to irrigate it away from the eardrum, some of the eardrum came away. In short, the eardrum was now ruptured. I was not a happy bunny. And I rang, I Googled where Sue Patterson was working and I cold called and I said, hey, how are you doing? My name is Dara Hannan. I'm a vet ringing from Dublin. Can I talk to Sue Patterson, please? And she answered the phone, really, I'll be honest, um, a bit confused as to who I was or why I was ringing. And in fairness to her, she was very professional, very courteous, very helpful. I think she realized that I was having a little bit of a panic and she gave me some top advice. So she, she is fantastic. She, she really is. It's very good. We must get Sue on, actually. I think she, she'd be a good, uh, yeah. good guest. Uh, not as good as Dara, but a, a good guest. Um, but one thing I would just mention, because I know we'll have listeners uh, who are worried about their pets, uh, particularly coming up to, to the bad uh, skin season. Um, acral skin, uh, acral lick dermatitis, um, can that be confused with, um, with vasculitis, this uh, uh, acute glomerular vascular disease that we see in dogs this time of the year yeah so i'll be totally honest with you. this is the cutaneous renal glomerular vasculopathy um what is the common name for it the layperson's name for it do, do you know i'm, I'm trying to, uh alabama rot that's it that's it so alabama we rot. we actually haven't had any confirmed cases here in ireland i am conscious and aware of it um but there was one suspected case in dublin and um, it wasn't actually confirmed um but yeah, I think that the the difference would be that when it comes to acrylic dermatitis, there is reliably kind of one area that's affected and generally it's that left craniocarpal region. So you'll see, you know, early on, it's that discoloration above the carpus. And then later on, you can see that there's that kind of thickened um, dermal fibrosis has set in. There's thickened skin. Sometimes you'll get ulceration, things like that. Um, but obviously, and I'm sure everyone knows this, like if you're concerned, definitely bring your pet to the vet. Absolutely. It tends to form very quickly, doesn't it? Very, very acutely. So, um, Dara, what an amazing 60 seconds worth of oh. CPD, that. And a full 60 seconds worth. Absolutely perfect. Uh, which I think uh, merits um, a certificate. And it just so happens that, that uh, I have one here. Class. Here we go. Here we go. So here, this is, it says, Certificate of Topics and Atopics. Uh, now, Unfortunately, we haven't got to the bit that I was hoping to get to because we were going to mention your love of golf and rugby. 
Oh as yeah, a, as a combo, and we'll get, we'll get onto that afterwards, I'm sure, oh, in the in the post amble. But I've put um, this certifies that if you add another game to golf, it's still golf because I have very fixed views on golf. I'm afraid now rugby, I love. There's there's a rugby stadium there to prove how much I love rugby. Golf, in my view, is a good walk ruin. But there we go, there we go. See, look, rugby. There's a there's a picture of a boiled egg there, and that's rugby. Sorry, that's 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 golf. That's golf. Golf is a boiled egg. It's a boiled egg of a sport. Rugby. Look, rugby is a baked egg of a, of a sport. And there's a, a bit of now. There's some lovely wholemeal soda bread that I printed out. Having heard you say that you like soda bread, not instantly you didn't. I had to force you into that because I had the picture for that. But there's a baked egg there. So. Now there's also uh, that's a mast cell tumor on a dog. So we're just looking at a removal of that. So that's patched out. Now, that's the dermatology I like because you can cut things out. Um, not the dermatology you like because I have any pictures of that. But I do have a very interesting picture of a friend of mine's uh, leg uh, where he was bitten by a horsefly and got a very nasty vasculitis. And so that's why I brought up the, uh, uh, the, 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 the Alabama rot just to fit in with the certificate yeah. I've already pre-printed. And to finish it all off nicely, there's a picture of a microscope, which, if you squint a little bit, could look very much like you pretending to be a microscope in your Instagram. That's beautiful. I'm I'm glad um that this video won't be shown because it's bringing a tear to my eye. <laughs> <laughs> a, a tear of pain. I know. Well, I'm sorry about that. No, thank think, you very much. Using That's... the wonders of modern technology, we can show that video. <laughs> Surely not. Uh, thank you very much, lads. That's very, very thoughtful. Honestly, thanks a million. Well, it's been it's been worth it. You're very uh, welcome. I've, I've got another question for you though, Dara, because yep. you know we've 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 had our CPD, mm. we've got our CPD mm. certificate, but according to the RCVS, etc., etc., unless we reflect on what we have received, it doesn't truly count. So, do you have a reflection question for our audience? The answer is no, obviously. The, the answer can be no, and that's also fine. <laughs> no, I, I haven't really thought of reflecting. You mean in general or on acrylic dermatitis? Whatever you want. In general. In general, it can be general. Yeah, give us a, give us general. a philosophical yeah. musing of, of Dara. Go on. Well, here's, here's, here's what I, I would like to say. I think that uh, if you are a recent or a new grad, um, try and take on as much as you can. If you've got a cat booked in tomorrow... And you're hoping that someone else is going to do that, I don't know, nail nail removal or something like that. Or if you've got a greyhound and you have to remove a tail and you're hoping that someone else would do it, have a look at a textbook, read up, look at the evidence and give it a good honest go yourself. That's what I would say. I think Excellent. that there's, there's, you know, ask your colleagues for help, seek out mentorship by all means, but definitely like grasp the reins yourself. And be happy to give things a go with, you know, responsibly. Make sure you do your research and that you're happy that you feel equipped. Um, but I, I'm worried that more and more students, um, they're, they're more so being trained about what they shouldn't do or what they should refer. Whereas I do think that's a beautiful degree. Um, there's a lot of, of core competencies and yeah. skills that are there and just embrace them and go for it and keep trying new things. We're so fortunate, even at this stage, we can do so much. We're, we're, we're it's a wonderful profession, an absolutely amazing profession. 
Uh, but I can I can see it if if people don't follow your advice, your affliction advice there. Uh, I, I can see it being a case that, that you go into uh, you're not vaccinated. You, you say to the vet, uh, "Can you look at this lump?" And they throw up their hands and say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! No, I'm, I'm just doing a vaccine. You'll need to see a lump vet for that." And I can fit you in next week with our lump vet. So yeah, we need to, and I'll be there. to keep these <laughs> pluripotencies. You'll be there. You'll be there. Have you got enough um, adverts on this show already? <laughs> I don't think you want enough. People need to see Dara's Instagram. I mean, it's it's hilarious. It's great and informative. Yeah, check out at the Topical Vet on Instagram. There's a lot of great stuff on there. There's some some good instructional stuff as well as some good light-hearted stuff. And talking about instructional stuff and light-hearted stuff, if you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to click like, share, tell your friends about it, and do subscribe because it really does help. So I think it leaves me to say, on behalf of uh, the Veterinary Ramblers, Dara O'Hanlon, thank you very much indeed for a really entertaining time. And And may may I just intervene and say thank you both Julian and Mike. I have really, really enjoyed this. I didn't quite know what to expect, but this has been brilliant. I've really enjoyed my Wednesday evening. And thank you so much. You're doing great things with this podcast. Thank, well, thank you very thank, much. That's very kind to say. Thank you. I've, I've gone all tingly. Well, yeah, me the, too. Yeah. In that case, Dara, may your dog go with you. May your dog go with you. In, in old Dave Allen style. Yep. Someone from around your neck of the woods, I believe. Cheers. 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 <laughs>